Have you ever found yourself wondering if you're in the beginning stages of a trauma bond? Tara and I share our first warning signs that we were becoming increasingly dependent on our narcissistic partner. And the self-help tip is the importance of living in the present moment instead of the future, especially when encountering someone who's very good at future faking. By the way, we have a newsletter we'd love to share with you. Please sign up for it at breakingfreewithcarrieandtara.substat.com. We'll be sure to put the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience. And I'm Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach. This is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show for less than a cup of coffee. Carrie, I got reached out to by one of my followers who was asking the question, how can they tell the first sign of a trauma bond? They're been in unhealthy relationships. Now they're trying to date again, and they're really trying to avoid a repeat of their previous unhealthy, toxic, narcissistic relationships, as a lot of us who are dating are. We we don't want to ever go through that again. And I was thinking back to my first sign of a trauma bond. And I do think there were earlier signs more than likely, but I think the first overt sign where I'm like, maybe something isn't quite right with this is when I found myself sort of excusing, minimizing, or justifying my narcissistic ex's behaviors to some other people. I would like casually bring up something he did that I didn't quite like or didn't feel good about, and they would say something against it or like, that's not okay or whatever. And I would be very quick to jump in. And I really wasn't willing, for one, to think about or sit on what they were saying. I really wasn't willing to hear it or sit on it. And the other side is I very quickly jumped to defending, justifying, minimizing, excusing, like it wasn't that bad or you're not thinking of it. This is just one time, all that kind of stuff, even though it hadn't been one time. I started that little deception. And I think that was the first sign that something definitely wasn't totally okay. But I, at the time, I just thought that that was being a good partner. And I just made a lot of excuses and explanations for that, too. Do you think that you had an awareness that you were defending this person's reputation, their image, that you were actually doing it with yourself? Did, Did you feel that? dichotomy inside yourself? I don't know if I would have called it dichotomy, but I absolutely did not want to hurt his image or make anyone think badly of him. He was such a nice guy. He looked like a Kennedy. I do feel like I contributed to that. Mm. And it really got worse over the years. It uh, I would just not share the bad things that were going on behind closed doors. If something was brought up for whatever reason, I worked overtime to sort of explain, justify, or I would take responsibility for it. Like, oh, he was just in a bad mood because I had done X, you know? And I know the people around me could see that that wasn't quite okay, but I don't think the people in my life at that time really knew enough about abusive relationships to have helped me or supported me. Because I'm I'm hearing you describe cognitive dissonance, that you were having it already, Mm -hmm. that you knew there, there was a good side and a bad side. That the bad side was bad enough that you were protecting his image to the public. It's interesting mm-hmm. that you're even protecting his image to yourself. Yeah. It's hard to be aware of that. I think that we do that so naturally. I, I mean, I did the same thing. I was definitely dropping 
pieces of information and not passing it on, not telling anybody, because I knew if they heard, then they would think poorly of him. And I didn't want that to happen. Yeah. I, I was trying to overlook it. So I certainly want everyone else to overlook it. But yeah, so I was doing that. But for me, I think there was an earlier sign that I recognized. And the earlier sign was that I, w- I was literally living on his availability to when he could mm-hmm. show up, when the next text was going to have. I kept the phone right next to me. You know, even in meetings, I would have it off silent or certainly have it on vibrate so that I would know the moment that he texts, I could excuse myself and and respond that I was living with like bated breath for his engagement. And he already was using intermittent reinforcement. So what he would do is he would, if I texted, he might not show up for hours and it would be completely spontaneous. It wouldn't, there was no predictability. So I might text maybe thinking I'm going to catch him at lunch. No, I might not hear from him until eight o'clock at night that evening. But the next day, I might text him in the morning and then he shows up at lunch and he's available at lunch to text because remember, we were dating long distance. So I was living on that contact. I knew enough, and this is weird, and I, and I need to remind myself this in the future. I knew enough not to call him that I had to like had permission for how I interacted with him and that there was some hidden hoops that I had to jump through. And I, had to sort of figure them out and then do that appropriately, or I could feel the pullback, feel the withdrawal. So I was doing all this like mind reading and trying to like guess what all the little expectations were. And I was sacrificing so much of myself. I was sacrificing my attention to my own life. In fact, I remember feeling like life in the day-to-day when he wasn't in it was gray, black and white and dull and flat. And then whenever he'd show up, it felt like somebody injected color into the world, sort of like that movie. And so whenever he was around my life, like I came alive, but whenever he was not around, I felt like I was dead. And I didn't realize that that was really a problem, that there was something incredibly wrong for me to be living like that. That was the first sign, is is that I was completely sacrificed my quality of life for this relationship. What I heard from what you shared was the first sign was dependence. Mm -hmm. That's really what I heard. And I can actually think back to the moment when I started to feel that in that specific relationship I was discussing earlier is the sign that if he chooses me, Mm -hmm. I'm okay. If he's here, if he's here with me, I'm okay. But I'm not okay in and of myself. And I... You know, I never thought about this until now, but my ex was a super nice guy. That that was the images view of him, a super nice guy. And I yeah. was considered kind of difficult, bitchy, prickly were words that I often heard to describe myself, that people either loved or hated me, mm. that I was difficult. And I'd heard that most of my life anyway, like you're difficult. And I mean, I was raised by a narcissistic mother who wanted to have control over me. So it's not surprising she would call me difficult a lot. Yeah. And I was often also told I was combative. And this nice, unassuming, genuine, Kennedy-looking motherfucker chose me. And it may... People actually told me that they looked at me differently Mm. because he was with me. There must be something softer or nicer about me because he was with me. Mm. And that dependence on that, that how his image did, in fact, in a way, improve my own... And I, I absolutely was dependent on that. It, it helped me have a different core of self 
Wow. That, yeah, you hit me really hard on that. Yeah. I was also doing image management myself and that, and it increased my vulnerability. I mean, obviously for those who know my story, I was widowed and I didn't want to be widowed. So there is that. I wanted out of being single. I'd never asked for it. I even, I don't think I've ever said this out loud before. I even had made a private goal to myself that I would be in a relationship with at least within a year after Brad died. And I feel really shamed telling that out loud, but I, uh, but that's how badly I wanted the life that I felt was stolen from me back. And it wasn't that I wanted to replace Brad so much as that I wanted the life that I had back. But, but just like you, growing up in a dysfunctional home and there was rigid familial roles and I had been scapegoated a lot. So I'd either was sort of parentified, I was sort of seen as the surrogate parent for the family, or I was the scapegoat and sort of the misfit of the family. Yeah. Having him choose me was so satisfying. And it did it just like it did for you, kind of changed your image. It sort of satisfied this need that I was lovable, that somebody, not mm-hmm. just Brad, I, I, you know, in a way, I kind of diminished Brad's choosing of me as significant over the years because it, it was, we were in the relationship for so long. But I, I wanted the validation of having another person choose me. And that really opened me up to being vulnerable, to seeing myself suspend my life for this person, literally suspend it. You know, it's interesting because I'm back out in the dating realm and trying to meet people and trying to approach relationships in a very, very different way. And in fact, I have a date tonight. And yeah, yeah and this guy's been fun to talk to. He's been very normal, very easy to talk to this person. I don't really know what he's like in real life. And I don't know what even what his voice sounds like and what it would feel like to do this dialogue. But the texting has been very, very easy. But I'm realizing that I don't wait on anyone these days to feel good about my life. I, in fact, I hardly even thought about it today, other than that I know that I have this tonight to get ready for. But it isn't like I'm counting down, the, like, what time is it? And when is it going to happen? Or you know, is he thinking about me? In fact, I even warned him I won't be texting today. I'm really busy. So I'm not waiting with bated breath the way that I would have with my ex. I approach it in a really different way because I'm approaching myself in a really different way. I absolutely had that same sort of, I don't know if it's necessarily a mindset shift, uh, maybe more like a self-esteem switch. I don't know. But when I started dating my now husband, I I literally showed up to the date and I was like, I'm going to have a nice time because mm-hmm. I'm here with me and I like me. And if my date ends up being pleasant, well, that's that's a good bonus. But either way, I'm going to have I'm going to have a nice time. And I, yeah. I had a nice time and kept having nice times with this with this man that I'm now married to. But that was a big shift for me that it wasn't about, you know, I didn't sit there the whole date being like, does he like me? What does he think of me? What should I say? So he thinks something of me that I could just feel like I could be myself and be OK if he did or didn't like that. And with my narcissistic ex, I thought I did that in the beginning, but I realize now that I was, I very quickly started trying to pretzel myself into who I thought he might want. Yeah. Because yeah. I wanted to be chosen. Yeah. I was thinking the stages of of a trauma bond. There are seven stages. And the first stage is love bombing, which is sort of the obvious, easiest one. And we always say, if it's too good to be true, then it probably is. Mm-hmm. And yes, what is happening with that person they're doing is wrong. They are showing up and creating this false persona so that you will like them. They have tremendous skin in the game. Theirs is to make you fall for them. That's Mm -hmm. what they're pursuing. But I think 
we often don't look at the victim side of it. I'm I'm stuttering because I feel really touchy about this because I don't want to. I'm not victim blaming. I'm not saying we participate in our own abuse. I'm not saying that, but I do think, and I'm going to try to say this really carefully so that it doesn't come across wrong. I do think because we always go into every relationship needy. You're not going to find a way not to do that, and that's normal. Like you even said, you wanted to belong. Of course you did. I want to belong. We all want to belong. That's part of our hardwiring. But to recognize when it's becoming something that's really driving us versus something that we're trying to find a way to manage and meet our own needs around it and finding a way to hold space for it for ourselves, it's like walking into the grocery store. It's never wrong to buy food at the grocery store, but you're going to buy too much if you walk in hungry. So when we walk into these situations, we need to be aware of how hungry we are psychologically for this person to choose us. And the higher the drive, the more vulnerable we are. And so, so maybe you're really vulnerable. Maybe you can't help that you're really vulnerable. But even being aware of the vulnerability, I'm like, if I walk into the grocery store after work and I am hungry, but I know I need to make the stop, if I know that I'm vulnerable, then I can consciously work against picking up too many groceries. And if I walk into this date tonight aware that maybe I'm feeling shaky or insecure or I don't know how I sit in the world, or I'm frustrated with being single, or whatever it is, then I'm going to hold on to that and not let it drive me quite so hard as I would have if I'd been unaware. I was thinking of the metaphor for the grocery store. You know, in order to not overbuy, we, we prepare before. We decide what we're going to get, and that's all. And we tell ourselves, yeah. that's, this is all I'm going to get. This is all I'm going to pick up from the grocery store. And we write down a list, and we have that list in front of us, and we go to the grocery store. Yep. And I found when I was dating and then chose my narcissistic ex and then the narcissistic ex I dated after him, (laughs) I didn't have any kind of intentionality in terms of what I was dating, what I was looking for. And I wasn't totally aware of my own assets and liabilities. And I think that's when we think of our liabilities, I think that's important in assessing how needy are we. Because when I was in a healthier place, I absolutely went on dates with people where I felt like there was utterly no connection. We had nothing in common. And to them, it didn't matter. To them, it didn't matter that I was just a a warm body and they would have been totally willing to be my boyfriend forever. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I was in a healthier place. So I I wasn't going to prey on that. But if we are in a relationship potentially with a predator, they will see that and they will prey on that. I wasn't that person. But when I started dating again, I did a dating non-negotiable list, which was a work I had done with my therapist and a relationship coach I had hired. And the dating non-negotiable list was the most important for me because it allowed me that intentionality. It was like the grocery store list. And I'm only going to choose a partner that has these character traits and qualities. And if they have any of these deal breakers, which deal breakers are not something I had before doing this kind of work. I thought that deal breakers, I could help change. You know, that person, he's got a little drug addiction. I can help him change it. <laughs> little drug addiction. Get him on that 12-step. abusive. Step. Yeah, he's abusive. I'll, I'll learn a good communication style. <laughs> and I had to see it as if they have these qualities, I'm not sticking around because I don't have the power to change them. I thought I had a lot more power. I never mm-hmm. had power in those relationships, but I really thought I had a lot more power than I actually had. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's it's good if we're dating or if we're in romantic relationships today to assess that of, 
what are we truly wanting out of our partner, out of our relationship? What deal breakers? What are the things that we absolutely are unwilling to tolerate? And what boundaries do we potentially need to set around either of those things? Mm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. And one of my new non-negotiables is I need to experience respect. If this person's not respecting me, not showing that who I am matters or my needs matter or they're rushing things or they are treating me sort of like a warm body and and they're not looking at me, I don't want to be in a relationship where I'm the warm body. I don't want that. I don't need it that bad. But you're right. It it does really help. And I had just heard that same advice from from a dating coach saying, go into the next relationship with a list. Be, Mm -hmm. Be mindful of not only the qualities that you want, but also the type of relationship that you're looking for and the treatment that you're looking for. That's really super important so that then you're informed when it starts to feel off. And I think for myself, anybody that yanks me around makes me feel off balance or that like life's too unpredictable with them. Like it's only on their terms and never Mm -hmm. a mutually agreeable terms. And I'm, I'm not interested in, I'm not, I just don't want a relationship like that because that's too much work. Like you said, it turned you into a pretzel. Well, I'm not interested in being a pretzel these days. I like that advice for for all of us, too, because what I did partly with that dating non-negotiable list is I looked at, okay, these are the qualities that I want and will not accept in a future partner. But do I have these same qualities? Mm. And I really had to look at, for example, my honesty. Here I was really wanting an honest partner. But I had struggled being truly honest in a lot of these relationships. It wasn't safe for me to be honest. I walked on eggshells, which means I didn't totally share everything that I would want to share, or I would lie by omission, or I would try to manipulate by you know, saying it this really gentle way, saying maybe when I meant no. I had to really look at, if I'm wanting an honest partner, what do I need to learn to do differently so I can be a more honest person? And I think that's also getting clear about our own liabilities. I would have told you I was the most honest person ever. And in reality, I really wasn't. I mm. I was deceptive in a lot of little ways because I was so frightened of conflict and yeah. really saw it as painful and unnecessary. And I had to learn that that's not how conflict works in healthy relationships. So if I want a different kind of relationship, I also have to learn how I approach those relationships differently. And you said you were looking for your belonging. Well, if you think that it's not okay to be flawed, that you can't belong as you are, then you're going to hide that in order so that you can fit in, not realizing that you're not really being authentically yourself. It's Mm -hmm. powerful. You know, the last thought I had before we wrap up this topic is what do we say to somebody who's recognizing that they are seeing signs of a trauma bond? What should they do when it's you're thinking, oh, crap, I, I'm doing one of either what Tara is talking about or I'm do- finding myself in what Carrie's been talking about. I think that if I was to go back and speak to me, I would say, you know what, slow down. Start focusing on your life and adding in the things that you think are missing. And I, But I would have said, yeah, but I can't get that marriage back and I'm really lonely and I don't have a community here and something is really wrong and I'm not happy. I don't even like where I'm living. And I would say, well, let's, let's identify one of them and start to see what steps you can take to make that better. I probably would have fussed and still not be happy about it, but at least it, but it was a start. And a start was a turning the focus back on me instead of seeing the relationship as the solution. No relationship. This is me speaking as a woman who's lived over 60 years. No relationship is the solution. I used to think that it was. It is not the solution. The solution's inside of me. I got to find it. 
And maybe it's going to take a long time to get there, but I've got to find it. Multiple studies have studied why people are happier at the end of their lives. And those people always say how meaningful their relationships are is connected to happiness for them. And I always saw that and thought, well, it's got to be romantic. And I, I think there is a lot of importance on assessing our, all of our relationships in our life, what we would want them to be. Because no relationship is a source of happiness, right? Mm. And no relationship can be one sole source of anything, really. Like, I can't expect my partner to always be emotionally available for me. But I can 80 to 90% of the time. And that's why we need other people in our lives, too. And so when I hear like lack of community, not feeling a part of, that can be part of our work of, I need to find community of support. I need to find good close friends. I need to find other people outside of this particular relationship. For me, being in that trauma bond, I too needed to really look at myself and what's going on with myself. I think if I was to go back and talk to myself, I would say, start looking at if the words and actions align. Because I not only was hearing from my ex, I'm a good person, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. But I was also hearing that from a lot of other people. He's a good person, he's a good person, he's a good person. And because of that, even when I would see unkind, disrespectful actions, I was playing that in my head. He's a good person. He's a good person. So I was negating the actual unkind, disrespectful actions I was seeing. If I had actually looked at and been sort of clinical about it, observed, witnessed, tried to take a step back and be like, is that a kind action? Does that align with what he said he was going to do, et cetera? I, I would have been able to be a lot clearer about what was actually happening in that relationship. But that level of cognitive dissonance and how I was also gaslighting myself so much around that, I couldn't see it. Yeah, same for me too. If I had just even questioned, circled back and questioned more, I would have caught there that there were serious discrepancies, that this mm-hmm. person was lying a lot. Now, thank you for that. Today's self-help tip is to ask yourself the question, are you living in the present or in the future. For a lot of us, for example, who are in the beginning stages of a trauma-bonded relationship, we are probably experiencing love bombing. And often what happens with love bombing is a lot of future faking. So in my particular narcissistic relationship, I received so many promises of what our life would look like in the future. And I really just grabbed onto that, that, oh, that life is going to be so amazing. That's the life I've always wanted. And I'm going to have a companion. This person is going to help me reach that. But then I really wasn't looking at what's going on presently. Are we actually doing things that align with that future? For example, if we're going to buy a house, are we saving money? Are we practicing financial responsibility? Do their habits align with that future? My narcissistic ex, we would talk a lot about buying a cabin in the mountains and retiring there and having this wonderful life. Yet we never went on vacation to the mountains. Mm. He compulsively spent, so we never had any money saved to be able to potentially save money towards buying this cabin. He didn't even have a retirement fund. When we're looking at any of these relationships, regardless of the stage, we really need to assess how much 
am I in the present versus this imagined future? Because the predators that I have been with and and been around with in my life, they make a lot of promises that they have no intention of following through on. But it's a way to keep us hooked because that future can always be dangled, dangled like a carrot that we can run to. Or we are told if we'll do something, then we can achieve that future. But more often than not, at least in my experience, it didn't matter what I did. That future was never coming. That's such a really good point. And I see a slightly different angle to add to that. And that is not only living in the future of ideas and dreams and the ideal, but also living in the future of where is our time, attention, and ourself. I'm thinking of like living for the weekend. We can sort of chug through the day mindlessly, not really fully invested in it, present in it, and then live for these highlights, or we can learn to embrace every moment. And if we're not embracing every single moment, then they're really not alive. Narcissistic people take advantage of that because they do all this future faking. They get us to dream and get us ahead and out of ourselves. And that also blinds us to what should be happening in the day-to-day life that's not. We start to overlook some things that we shouldn't be overlooking. So yeah, I love this advice to really make sure that we live in the present, not in the future. Yeah, jumping off your point too, my ex would say a lot of things of, we're fighting so much because I'm just really stressed from my job. But when I get a different job, things will be better. Yep. But that that was just a way to take no accountability or make no changes in the current situation. So it just was a another deflection tactic. So yeah, it just being aware of, you know, we can make changes now to make our present better. And if someone is making promises of the of a change in the future, it's something to be aware of. Exactly. There's a warning. Thank you for joining us today. Have a question or comment? Email us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrieandtara.com. If this episode has been helpful, consider becoming a supporter. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow us at Breaking Free from Narc Abuse on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll see you back here next time.